So, what I want to reflect on tonight, it's actually deeply personal to me. It's how the difficulties are the gifts. How the difficulties are the gifts. And in our metta practice, this process of purification we've been talking about, that which we might consider hinders our practice. And what is the role of compassion in all this? This deep awakened caring with the difficulties of being human in this culture at this time. That's what the reflection is about. So I want to start with sharing a little bit more of myself. And when I do that, I'm highly aware of this teaching of the two truths. The teaching of the two truths acknowledges that we have a personal experience, a personal view, a personal truth, and that it's valuable. It also acknowledges that simultaneously there is this universal truth, universal reality, and that they tend to weave each other together. So it's a bit of a personal story. And for your own practice, you might want to just look at it thematically and really bookmark the themes that are relevant to you. Or maybe they'll lead to another tangent in your mind that's more relevant than anything I say. So as I mentioned a little earlier in the retreat, I started meditating young, in my late teens. This was long before mindfulness was in mainstream culture and long before meditation was cool for a teenager to do. And I started the training in metta meditation in my early 20s. And it really wasn't my idea. But the situation was this. Firstly, I was in um, some low-level, pervasive chronic pain for about six years. I was in a car accident in my late teens. And there was just, pain was a constant companion for me in those young years. And I didn't have the tools or the understanding to know how to attend to that internally or externally. So that was the first piece. The second piece was I was in a great deal of emotional pain. And the emotional pain stemmed primarily from a situation in my family where my mother was quite ill for about a decade. Um, The illness was complex. In the end, it ended in her passing when I was in my early 20s. And I was one of her primary caregivers. Very difficult. Very difficult. Broke my heart. So when I started metta meditation, it was about six months after she had died. And then I just had some of the usual kind of stresses and unsatisfactorinesses of being a young adult in the world, you know, financial insecurity and who was I and on all of this that some of us are working with here, you know, that period of life. There was one other thing that added to, I think, metta meditation moving into my practice in my life, and it was a belief. It was actually a misguided belief. And the belief was something like this, you know, I'm in pain. There must be something more than this pain. If only I suffer enough, then I'll be free. 
If I can just suffer enough, get every single last kernel of it out, you know, then I'll be free, then I'll be okay. Misguided belief. It was a misunderstanding of suffering, its causes, and the way out. But I believed it with all my heart and I lived from it every day, always seeking the shadow, because I wanted to be free. So maybe you have a belief, maybe not that one, but just one that you notice, hmm, I wonder if there's more than this belief. Maybe you've experienced chronic pain. I know we've all experienced pain of the heart. So it was actually in this context that Sylvia Borstein first taught me metta meditation. And I just remember her saying to me something like, you know, you're in a lot of difficulty in your life right now, and I think what you need to do is wish yourself well as much as you can, as often as you can. But the problem with it was I got another idea. I was full of ideas. (laughs) And the idea that I got was this. Metta meditation is a preschool level practice for people who are unable to watch the breath in insight meditation. I really believe this. I'll tell you why I believed it. Given that there was some low-level chronic pain and a lot of emotional intensity in my direct experience, you know, somebody says to me, please sit down and watch the breath in and out. It's completely unavailable. You know, the system was under too much stress. I knew I was breathing, and that was about as far as I could take it. Yeah. Um, during that particular period of time. And so I just thought, oh, they think I can't do this one, so they're going to give me this, like, you know, preliminary practice. And so I hated it. I had so much resistance, so much struggle, uh, so much judgment of the practice, of myself, and who did my teachers think they were to be telling me to do metta. Uh, Resistance is a theme in our practice. So I was completely wrong that metta meditation was a preschool level practice. You know, obviously I wouldn't be teaching it today. I certainly sit here before you, you know, in your moments of, I cannot do this, I totally give up. Feel free to peek and just go, you know what, if that woman could do it, <sighs> if it's helpful. Sometimes I marvel at how far we can come in our spiritual life, all of us. It's wide open and it's pregnant with possibility. So then there were the metaphrases. And you know, these metaphrases, first one traditionally, may I be protected and safe? And what would happen for me when I say, may I be protected and safe is, would come up as, I don't feel safe. I don't feel safe at all. I'll never be safe. I've never been safe. I was like, okay, maybe I'll move on to the next phrase. (laughs) May I be happy? And then the grief would just flood through me. It's like, happy? That's cheating. I'm grieving. Okay, maybe I'll just try the next one. May I be healthy and strong? And the body was not in a state of vibrancy at that time. It's like, oh, wow, I feel actually kind of weak and collapsed. All right, there's one more phrase. May I be at ease? I had the faintest idea what ease was. It's this word ease. And then, you know, I just kind of sit there and go, well, you know, I'll put a hand on my heart. Maybe I'll peek at Sylvia again. You know, I'm going to stick with this. Because when we're in pain, we're willing sometimes to do things 
that we might not necessarily do if it's a bright and sunny day, right? So at that point, when the metta seemed like it wasn't working and I couldn't follow the breath, one of my teachers suggested to me that I do compassion practice. And that lit me up. That was my doorway into metta, was compassion. And so I'm very pleased that at this retreat we're offering not just the metta training, but all of the Brahma Viharas, all of these divine abodes, loving kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy, and equanimity. Because you might find it's some cycle of your practice or your life that actually the doorway into the awakened mind, the flavor, is not metta. It's equanimity. It's joy. It's compassion. Being open to that. So, be telling some more stories offering some maps of how to work with the so-called hindrances to this practice, Um, some tools. Please use what's helpful. Leave the rest be. But first I want to talk a little bit about compassion itself. In a way, as an introduction, Sylvia will be here tomorrow and she'll be leading us in the compassion practice. Uh, The way that I talk about it, of course, is a little different than the way she talks about it. So you can blend it all together and then meet it with your own mind and heart. See what works. So compassion for me is the caring heart that quivers, it vibrates, it's touched in response to suffering. And then having actually been touched by the suffering in a healthy way, appropriate response possibilities automatically arise. So for me, it's not passive at all, this compassion. Other words for compassion, warmth, caring, pliancy, responsiveness, inclusivity. And there's a metaphor from the tradition that I quite like. It goes like this. A tree makes no distinction in the shade that it provides. So too, the awakened mind, heart of compassion makes no distinction in the caring that it provides. So I imagine this great grandmother tree in the summer, in full canopy, and it doesn't say, I will offer this shade to everybody but you. You It's without distinction. So the relationship with metta, uh, as Donald was also speaking about this afternoon, is that this warm, open, friendly mind of goodwill meets some pain. Characteristic of being human. It's not always easy being a human being living a life. And so it meets that disease and it opens. It's touched, it says, ah, I care. I care. And so there are some qualities that masquerade as compassion. There's some qualities that are the far opposites of compassion. One that masquerades as compassion is this quality of pity, which basically is an extra layer of separation uh, between self and other. It's a protection. So there's caring there. That's why it's a near miss. 
We don't have to throw it out and judge ourselves for feeling pity. It's just a near miss. And it says, I feel sorry for you, you know, as if we're separate. So let's talk about a non-traditional near miss, which is codependence, which is the opposite. It's, there's the caring there, but then we don't acknowledge that actually on a personal relative level, there is an I and a you, and we drowned. We actually lose that boundary in an unhealthy way. So it's a near miss. There's a lot of caring. Any one of us that's manifested this quality of codependence knows. Tremendous caring. But we lose our energy. We lose our wisdom. There's not a clarity there. The far opposites are these qualities of anger, ill will, even hatred. Protective conditioned responses. The pain is so much that we just shut down. Sometimes it's numb. There's just nothing. I don't care. I don't care, mind. So uh, this is quite well known quote from the Zen master Thich Nhat Hanh. Waking up this morning, I smile. 24 brand new hours are before me. I vow to live fully in each moment and to look at all beings with the eyes of compassion. I love that, the eyes of compassion. I see those eyes here. I see them in you. I see them in me. They're beautiful. So say a bit about um, compassion phrases. On our handouts, there are a bunch of different options for compassion phrases, and we'll look at those tomorrow in even more depth when Sylvia's here. But I want to share with you the phrases that um, I've developed and why I use them. You might like to use them, or you might just be supported by kind of the background reflections of why we might develop our own compassion phrases. So there are three for me. I care. I care about this pain. Through the caring, may the pain be eased. I care. I care about this pain. Through the caring, may the pain be eased. Here's why. The first line is only two words, I care. The reason I developed that is because at some point I made a commitment to myself that part of the transformation of this habit of shadow seeking, if I only suffer enough, then I'll be free. We can take those habit patterns, mine them for their gifts, in the difficulties are the gifts, and then use them to support awakening. So I thought, ah, I'm going to keep on the lookout for difficulty and suffering, mine, yours, ours. I'm gonna train the mind to have a first response. And the first response is these two words, I care. As a scene of what's true and the attitude of mind to bring to it. Amazing practice all through life, not just on retreat. Second line, I care about this pain. That allows the phrase to be able to use, be used for me, for anybody else. And it's also a gentle reminder when the pain starts to feel so personal. 
And the personal truth drowns out the universal that we all go through difficulties. And it's, ah, it's this pain. It's this pain. And right now, man, it's landing on me. I care about this pain. Through the caring, may the pain be eased. Acknowledges this piece about pity, um, pity and codependence. So it's trusting that the strength of the caring itself will lead to reactivity decreasing, which leads to the possibility of appropriate responses that we could never imagine when we're drowning in the pain and the reactivity is high. So it's also acknowledging that it's not passive. Through the caring, may the pain be eased in this moment and through appropriate action in the future. So you might have your own phrases. Use them. Sylvia has a phrase she'll probably share with you tomorrow. And it's a phrase from an older tradition. It's just this phrase, this too shall pass. People use that in their metaphrases sometimes to add a flavor of compassion. This too shall pass. All that arises passes away. I wanted to share with you as we develop our own compassion practice here that sometimes it's the phrases, sometimes it's the essence or the attitude, and sometimes it's the appropriate response itself that's where the juice of the compassion is. This is a quote from His Holiness the Karmapa in the, in the Tibetan tradition. I had the privilege in 2010 to be with him in his home temple in exile near Dharamsala, India. He gave a week-long teaching um, basically on the Brahma Viharas. This is one of my favorite lines from him about this relationship between compassion and appropriate response. I really trust it because this is a man who's given his whole life to the spiritual path, but also had to flee his home country, you know, um, leave his home culture, and you know, now has to take tremendous leadership and governance responsibility for his people. He says, we may want to help, but lack the patience to understand the situation fully and come in with our own ideas or personal agendas. When helping others, positive attitude and intention must be combined with practicing the perfections of heart and favorable conditions are needed. That and favorable conditions are needed is the equanimity understanding there that we're practicing this afternoon. We can have all the patience in the world. We can develop this heart-mind to the nth degree. And we are on the lookout for favorable conditions to support our action in the world. So both and, an internal and an external cultivation. So we can bring the spirit of compassion to our difficulties, our inner difficulties, our outer difficulties. And I wanted to share the quote that Larry brought in this morning in the meditation from Dr. King. Again, acknowledging the day of his birth. And look at it in this context. Dr. King said, returning violence for violence multiplies violence, adding deeper darkness to a night 
already devoid of stars. Darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. And I was reflecting on that quote all day. Maybe you were too. And then as I felt that moonlight on my face, as we were all coming into the hall and so many faces leaning up into the moonlight, I thought, yeah, you know, on one hand, the violence adds deeper darkness to a night already devoid of stars. When we do these practices, we're calling forward the light of the full moon of awakening. And I couldn't see any stars. It's like this same sky devoid of stars, but two totally different tracks. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. Whether it's our internal struggles or difficulties or our external struggles or difficulties. So we'll talk a little bit about the so-called hindrances to metta practice in the meditation. But I want to hold it in this context. There's a a teaching that I think about often from one of my um, root teachers. And her name is Jetsama Tenzin Palma. And she's a nun in the Tibetan tradition. She's been a nun all her life, British by birth. She's best known for spending many, many years meditating in a cave. Twelve years, actually. What I appreciate about her is her depth of practice and her high level of practicality. She's so practical. It's a great support for me. So she says this. If we experience something, fill in your own blank, just something, and we experience it as an obstacle, then it's an obstacle. If we take that same experience and we experience it as an opportunity, then it's an opportunity. It's that simple. We're shifting the mind. Ah, problem, to ah, interesting. So all of these hindrances, I always add so-called, because it's a choice whether it hinders us. And we're not in charge of whether it's a choice. Part of it is the unfolding of the practice and whoops, I just fell down the rabbit hole again. Wish I hadn't. It's an obstacle. But we can see it and say, ah, can I bring in a metta attitude and create an opportunity out of this rabbit hole of obstacle? Right there. So what are the so-called hindrances? The first one is wanting or grasping. One of the ways that this comes out is we often have expectations of the metta. We either have expectations of the metta itself, what it should feel like, how we experience it, uh, how it should look when we practice it. Expectation mind. It's not juicy, it's not gushing, it's not warm enough, it's not including somebody. I want something else, mind. We can actually bring the attitude of loving kindness to that moment. Um, A beautiful little saying 
I think they picked this up from Julie Wester. It's one of, one of the teachers here at Spirit Rock. She just says, this too, this too. To that kind of wanting, expectant mind with the practice. This too is an equanimity practice. And I was thinking about some of the stories that Larry shared last night about um, some of the school children. The nine-year-old who was able to pause within anger or the entire school in San Francisco that had a transformation due to mindful pauses and the friendliness of that. So I thought I'd share another story about youth and kids. The long background of sharing Dharma and meditation practice with youth and children. So it's a metta practice that when I worked here at Spirit Rock, I actually was the teacher for the family program and the teen program here at Spirit Rock for a decade. And so on Monday evenings, when Jack Cornfield would teach his Monday night class, there would be a children's Dharma class at the same time. Kids ages 5 to 12, sometimes their parents would come, and their, that would be their um, meditation for the evening was with their kids. Sometimes the parents would go down to the adult class. We would light candles and say metta blessings. We would pass the talking stick and speak our truth. And then they're kids. It was time to go outside and play tag. You know, gotta move. Gotta bring this practice into motion. And that's why it's so important, this yoga practice, if it's something that supports your body, that Khanda's offering. You know, we sit and we do these blessings and then it's time to move it around. Really make sure that it's not just heady blessings, but embodied blessings. Whether it's the walking or the yoga or the hike that you take after lunch and you just notice, wow, the phrases are really going. I'm just hiking. It's easy. I don't have to work so hard. Really important. So it's time to play tag. And so we took freeze tag, which is somebody is it, everybody else is running around, and if you get tagged, you're frozen until somebody else who's not it comes by and unfreezes you. We took that. I'm just looking and seeing that, that a dear friend who actually has my job now is in the hall. So this is for you. So we'd take that and we'd make it meta tag. And meta tag was that in order to unfree somebody, you had to run by and say to them a meta phrase. So the adults down in Jack's class would hear children screaming at the top of their lungs, may you be happy, may you be peaceful, may you live long and prosper. They liked Star Trek. This was back a long time ago, you know? And then they had this one that they just couldn't stop doing. And it was, may you have chocolate cake. (laughs) And I would sit down and try to be the good meditation teacher for these kids. And I'd say, you know, it's not really about chocolate cake. We're trying to have like a a blessing that they can take all life long and something in their heart. And, you know, some kids are allergic to chocolate, so you don't want to wish them chocolate cake. And they totally didn't get it. (laughs) You know, it was may you be happy, may you be peaceful, may you have chocolate cake. That's that wanting mind. We want something for ourselves and then we want it for others even if they're allergic, even if it's not helpful for them. You know, I want them to be happy and peaceful because they're annoying me. Why can't they calm down and be happy and peaceful? This is a wanting mind, right? It's a hindrance to the openness of metta. 
One of the near misses, as we've mentioned to Metta, is this attached love. I'll tell a brief story. It's a story from a novel that I read so many years ago that I confess I don't remember the name of the novel or the author, so I really want to honor whoever the author of this novel is in their anonymity, but still share the story. It was a novel, actually, interestingly, about an elder care home and all the different people that lived there and all the different people that visited. And there were a few people who lived in this elder care home who actually weren't so elderly in age. And this is a story about one of them. Her name was Marion. And her way of functioning in the world was that she would try to be kind all the time. And the reason that she tried to be kind all the time is she deeply longed to be appreciated. And so, as she told her story, she was a kind wife, a kind mother, and she couldn't understand when everything kept going wrong. And what went wrong in her life was her husband left her, her children were always getting into trouble, there's just a lot of complexity in her family life. And then she got MS. First she tried to be a kind hero, you know, and still take care of everybody else. But the MS progressed, it became worse. And finally she had to let go and let her children care for her. The interesting part of the story as she told it was when she let go and allowed, really what was she letting go of? In a way, this deep-seated habit pattern of if I'm not kind all the time, even when I'm running myself over, I won't be loved. And she had to let go of that. And what happened was her children started showing up in her life. For the first time, she was able to receive love unconditionally, not out of being such a nice person, right? It turned out that her symptoms lessened over the course of time, but she still had MS, and she still noticed that she had a habit of being kind for attached reasons, selfish reasons. And then one day she had this pivotal experience. She was sitting with her nine-year-old granddaughter. They were hanging out and they were talking, And her nine-year-old granddaughter said this to her. She said, Grandma, you're not listening to me. And Marion realized that her granddaughter was right. She was so busy being nice and kind to try to, you know, get the love that she wasn't actually listening. And she made a commitment then and there to be interested in people for the sake of being interested instead of feeding the selfish attachment. It's a story in a novel but really contains all that right there, working with this wanting in metta. So in our formal practice, when wanting comes up, we can of course see it for what it is, this mindfulness metta. Bringing a friendly attitude to it completes the mindfulness metta. And using the energy of the wanting itself to actually fuel a single-pointed attention on the support of the phrases. So we take that wanting energy and we say, okay, I'm gonna gather all this up, see it, not struggle with it, and use it to really, really stay focused on the phrases as an on-the-ground structural support to let that wanting pass away. So we don't fuel it with struggle. Second quality being the opposite, aversion. Lots of flavors of aversion. These anger-fear cycles, right? We've all experienced these. 
And so one version of anger that can come up in the metta practice, one of a thousand, kind of looks like this. In my own mind, it looks like this anyway. (laughs) You know what it looks like in yours. It's kind of like, I can't stand it. I hate this. I hate everyone, you know? I hate me. I remember this one time I was doing metta practice and I got angry at a coat hanger. (laughs) It was just angry mind, aversive mind. The coat hanger was minding its own business, but man, that coat just wouldn't go on there. I was so angry. Then I just started laughing. It's ridiculous. When that happens and it gets really highly charged, I mentioned this in one of the groups today, one of the useful techniques that we use on a retreat this long is permission to take what we call a Vipassana break. Only in a metta retreat would doing Vipassana be called a break. <laughs> and what that means is we can just let the phrases take a break and you know, take a few breaths, notice the, notice the anger, notice the fear, be with it. I'll talk a little bit more about the fear. Then come back to the phrases. So with the fear part of the aversive mind, uh, metta is the ultimate antidote as taught by the Buddha to fear. And so uh, the next talk that I'll share, I'll tell the whole story about how metta came to be birthed through the Buddha and what fear has to do with it and how that really works as an antidote. It's a powerful story. But for now, just to keep it simple, we can of course see the anger, the aversion, the fear for what it is. We can bring in that friendly attitude to it. So we've got metta mindfulness again. Then I wanna talk specifically about transforming the energy of fear, anger, and aversion into developing what I like to call a resilient nervous system. A nervous system that can meet these reactive energies of anger and fear. Now, if we're in the anger-fear zone, especially if it's spiking or it's a high level, we know the nervous system's engaged in the reactivity. So by doing this transformation of that energy, we're allowing the anger, the fear, and also you know, the bliss. We're allowing everything to be able to come and go. I'm going to talk a little bit about this, just as some supports in your practice, in addition to metta when you're working with this gestalt of anger, fear. So one of the things that we can do to support non-reactivity in the nervous system or de-escalating of reactivity in the nervous system is to keep on the lookout for safe. That's the first phrase traditionally in metta. I don't think that's an accident. If our system doesn't have, it doesn't have to be perfectly safe, but some degree or some possibility of safety, it's really hard to be warm and friendly. It's really hard to stay steady with the continuity of the phrases because we're working with reactivity that's high. Um, And the mind will come in and think about other things as a protective response, et cetera, et cetera. So we can keep on the lookout for safe. Sometimes that looks like emphasizing a phrase that we might use that includes safety. Sometimes it means really, really orienting the nervous system to right here, right now. And the way that we do that is we can open our eyes, we can look around and see, ah, maybe there's some fear or anger in the system and I'm right here, right now. 
It's keeping on the lookout for safe. The other supportive practice is this grounding of intense reactive energy whenever it comes. And we don't have to wait until it comes. We can do preemptive grounding of energy. There's a way that we can develop resiliency in advance, and then we can support resiliency in the moment. So one of the ways that we can do that is the simple practice of feeling our feet on the ground, feeling our hands in our lap while we're practicing, you know, when we put the fork down when we're eating, just settling, settling, settling. Real support. So we've got wanting, we've got aversion, and next we've got the sleepy continuum, the sloth and torpor continuum that so many of you raised your hand for. What was it? 90% of our community yesterday was having cycles of sleepiness. I bet it's already changed. I'm sure sometimes we're feeling sleepy some of the time. But if we said a sh- had a show of hands, how many people were mostly sleepy today? Probably wouldn't be 90%. One way that you might have noticed that this manifests in the metta practice is what we call metta muddles. And it looks like this. I took a little poll at dinner and, and I asked Donald, I said, what's your favorite metta muddle when the mind gets kind of sloth and torpor and vague and the concentration starts to sink and the phrases get a little strange. So here's Donald's, so I could share it. His is, um, so one of the phrases is, may I be happy and contented. And if it's a meta muddle, there's not enough energy of sleepiness, it comes out, may I be happy and cemented. (laughs) So you can imagine Donald cemented. (laughs) Mine is this. One of my phrases is, may I be protected and safe. And it, it has been known to come out, may I be protected and sane. <laughs> it's just like random words come in because there's not that clarity of mind, the energy isn't there. So that sense of humor with metamuddles brings in aliveness and energy right there. We're already moving in a new direction, to name that. And nurturing the curiosity and investigation is also a support. Ah, just did a meta muddle. I saw it. What's going on in here? Brings in more energy. It's also really supportive to both use, if you use an image as a support in your practice, an image of yourself, an image of the benefactor, etc., really get curious about fleshing out that visualization in your mind. What is the look in their eye? What is the subtle facial expression? What is the body language and that image that you're calling up to support the practice because that will bring in interest. Also being sure to land very precisely on the beginning of each phrase will support energy. If we start out in a kind of vague way and we're already feeling a little bit dreamy, it's likely to end up cemented. And then of course there's just the basic helpful strategies of straightening our spine, opening our eyes, standing up, taking a nap, and pulling on our earlobes. You can try it. It's an old technique from India. Fourthly, we have the dynamic that's kind of the opposite of sleepiness, is the restlessness, and specifically restlessness and worry. 
I want to talk about this in terms of the body, although it also has a mind component, but using the body as a muse. We all have the experience of body discomfort, and we all have the experience of body energy from time to time. And sometimes that can easily grow into restlessness and then we can start to get worried. How many times have you had some part of the body ache during meditation and you discover yourself making multiple appointments for the body worker, the the MD? It's quite a natural thing. That's the worry response. What it means is, oh, body's in a little distress. I care, so I'm going to create an action plan If we can go back to the I care and lead from that, we might be able to trust that we will have the appropriate action plan when it's time to leave the retreat. It's never too late to rewind to I care. It's the compassion. So I wanted to share a story about Tara Brock. Tara Brock is the founding teacher of Washington Insight, Washington DC Insight. I really respect her practice and her teachings in this area. So a story that I was reminded about her was a time when she was suffering with chronic fatigue. And then it was compounded by some digestional issues which were diagnosed as irritable bowel. And during that period of time, she was about to and then engaged in a six-week meditation retreat. And so there was all this body discomfort And the restlessness arose quite greatly, and her mind would pop out into worry over and over again. So this is what happened. First, she noticed the thoughts and feelings appearing and disappearing with a tremendous acceptance, compassion, and gratitude. You know, the body's in a lot of distress. Chronic fatigue and irritable bowel, that's a hard combination. And then she started to notice that she wasn't glomming onto it with the worry mind so much, and then therefore she wasn't taking it so personally. And then this is what happened when she concluded her meditation. She said, when I opened my eyes, I was stunned by the beauty of the New England fall. The trees rising tall out of the earth, the yellows and the reds set against a bright blue sky. The colors felt like a vibrant, sensational part of life playing through my body. That is so different than the dynamics of illness sometimes. Yeah. The sound of the wind appeared and vanished. The leaves fluttered towards the ground. A bird took flight. The whole world was moving like the life within me. Nothing was fixed, solid, or confined. I knew without a doubt that I was a part of the world. You know? And then the next thing that happened was her stomach cramped again. And yet there was this tremendous compassion. So gratitude is a tremendous support alongside compassion with the restless body, um, whether it's restless energetically, whether it's restless because of discomfort and that restless mind. Beautiful support. And we often call gratitude a a kind of a cousin of mudita, or this sympathetic joy. And then the last in this list, so we have wanting, aversion, sloth and torpor, restlessness, worry, and then we have doubt. Uh, 
And doubt gets the prize as the one that can do a lot of damage. So one of the things that happens quite commonly to normalize a little bit in a long-term metta practice like this is the metta will lose its juice. We're going along, we're saying our phrases, we're minding our own metta business, everything's fine. And then it's just dry. There's no juice. It's boring. And then we can get that wanting mind expectation, it shouldn't be like this. I want it to be like this. So then we've got the wanting aversion dynamic going on. But Sylvia actually has a title for this because it's so common. She calls it phone book metta. And what phone book meta means to her is it's like we're saying the phrases and it's literally like reading the phone book. Da, 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 da. I mean, it's just boring. No juice. Reading the phone book. It's very easy for the next set of thoughts to come up in the mind. This is not working. I cannot do this. You know, maybe I should go wash my socks. You know, maybe I should go do anything but do this because I can't do it and it's not working and... You know, it can proliferate endlessly. The teachers aren't being clear enough. The, the meditation hall is too hot. It can go into an aversion attack, something. We call those multiple hindrance attacks, by the way. They tend to glue together. So we need some antidotes for this. And the first one, no surprise, is to see the doubt for what it is. And my favorite example of seeing the doubt for what it is and bringing a friendly attitude to it is actually a a hero of mine. I haven't haven't brought her into teaching in a while, so I want to bring her back into our community. It's Julia Butterfly Hill. She's a real, real inspiration for me, especially right around the time when she was sitting in Luna. and and, um, So Luna, let's talk about Luna. Luna is a, a great redwood tree in uh, the Mendocino area of California. And Julia Butterfly Hill is a lifelong activist. And she spent over a year living in the top of this tree in order to save it and the trees around it from clear cutting. And of course, not just Luna and the trees around it, but to make a statement about the preciousness of the trees on our planet. That which provides us the air that we breathe but she put her body on the ground. And she just so happened to choose one of the winters that she was sitting in that tree, doing that tree sit, was one of the greatest El Nino winters that we've had in California in my lifetime. And so I spent a lot of time praying for her that winter. Maybe you did too, if you knew about her. But she wrote this poem right in the middle of it. And it's called Doubting Myself. She says, at moments like this, and she was like right in the middle of El Nino, she was about to be ripped out of the tree in the winds and they couldn't get food to her. And I mean, it was just like pretty dire. At moments like this, doubt creeps into the shadows of my mind, seeping through the cracks and crevices, gripping onto anything it can find. I have to learn to listen to everything inside of me, including the doubt. Ignoring it does not make it go away. I must face it, peer deep within it, and find what lies below. Behind all subconscious thought, there is some form of truth, twisted sometimes, 
manipulated possibly to mislead, but real nonetheless. I must open up to the reality, search it for its worth, and discard the rest. The difficulties can become the gift. That's what she's saying. So we can see the doubt for what it is. We don't need to be sitting in Luna. It's coming, it's going. We bring the friendliness, we bring the compassion. And then we can transform the energy of doubt into the passion to keep going. This is from Sharon Salzberg. When self-doubt arises in the mind, we can transform it into a helping tool. We use it as a signal to cultivate confidence in our own ability to face obstacles that naturally arise on the path of discovery. This basic confidence enables us to face any level of doubt. Then we can experience wholeheartedly, not holding parts of ourselves back from our practice and our lives. Doubt holds us back. Compassion and loving kindness sets us free. So when the doubt comes, as it does, there's not a problem. We don't need to fiddle too much with things. If we don't make it a big drama, then we don't need to fiddle too much. We can see it as it is, doubt, hello, welcome even. Another wonderful metaphrase that attends to the energy dynamic of doubt is this. May I trust in the unfolding. May I trust in the unfolding. I have walked through my life in periods just saying that over and over again. May I trust in the unfolding. May I trust in the unfolding. I don't know. Certainly if you're feeling, um, you know, really held down, held back by doubt, bring it to our check-ins, check in about it, get some support. One last little story. Uh, It's kind of a new practice I've taken on in regards to doubt. So a couple of years ago, I was teaching a retreat for teenagers over New Year's. For 10 years straight, I brought in the New Year's with large groups of teenagers meditating. Yes, they can do it. And they actually meditate for half an hour periods at a time. Half an hour sitting meditation, half an hour walking meditation, in silence. And then we'll have periods of integrative practice, checking in, music, hanging out. And then we'll do another silent period. Think of them next New Year's. When I started meditating, there was nothing like that, probably for many of you also. Now there is. So, at this particular retreat, um, I would also support and supervise and mentor a staff of 12 volunteers who gave their time freely over New Year's each year to support these youth in their awakening process. There was a new staff a couple of years ago, and he was part of the Dharma Punks community. And um, one of the pieces of some of the people in the Dharma Punks community is they have a lot of tattoos. 
So he had two tattoos on his hands, on the palms of his hands, in beautiful script. And do you know what they said? They said, I love you, keep going. I love you, keep going. That is our internal, external response to doubt. Now here's the good news. If you don't have tattoos and you're not into them, I don't have any myself, you do not need to tattoo your hands. Here's the practice that I do. When doubt comes, I look at my hands and I feel my hands and I see those tattoos. I love you, Heather. Keep going. You can just look down and see. So, a couple of closing quotes. One is from His Holiness, the Dalai Lama. And it just made me smile, so I want to share it with you. It's very simple. He says, if you want others to be happy, practice compassion. If you want to be happy, practice compassion. And then one more. I think I'm going to share this. Um, Because something happened for me this afternoon when I was um, preparing for these reflections and I pulled out my book with Julia Butterfly Hill. And as I said, I haven't shared her story or that poem in, in some years. And I opened it up and this poem fell out. And it's a poem by Kabir. And it's a poem about love. But what's amazing about this poem is it's not written in my hand. It's written by one of our cooks here at Spirit Rock that was here for years and years and years offering her service and practice through the love of food. Her name is Sita. She's not here anymore. I miss her. She wrote me this poem probably 15 years ago on my birthday when I was sitting here on retreat at Spirit Rock. She actually sang it to me every year. I sat a two-month retreat here on my birthday every year for 10 years. And every year on my birthday, I'd keep the silence, and I'd go down and visit Sita, and she would sing me this poem. So I wanted to share it with you. This love between us goes back to the first humans True love has no beginning. It has no end. Deeply look deeply at this great love. It cannot be annihilated. As the river gives itself to the sea, what moves inside of you moves inside of me. So I thank you for your practice. And I thank you for your willingness to transform the difficulties into the gifts. 
for ourselves and for the world. Oh, don't forget to walk under the full moon. Please give yourself. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.